This is Louisiana Considered on WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge. I'm Diane Mack. Just ahead on today's show, Craigslisted, a quirky, dark comedy presented by The NOLA Project, is making its New Orleans debut. And we'll journey to Donaldsonville, Louisiana, as we revisit our conversation with Kathy Hambrick, founder of the River Road African American Museum. But first, Thanksgiving is just around the corner, and families around the country are uniting over a love for one another and a love for food. And from turkey to candied yams to cranberry sauce, Thanksgiving delicacies can seem like their own entity. Famed New Orleans food writer Ian McNulty actually once said the same thing about the food at Jazz Fest. And this year, with the return of the event for the first time since the pandemic, vendors didn't disappoint with everything from crawfish monica to praline beignets. Back in April, WWNO's Carly Berlin brought us this story about all the Jazz Fest culinary offerings. Today, in honor of the upcoming holiday, we give this food-focused story a second listen. For out-of-towners, Jazz Fest is about the music. But for locals, it's all about the food. We have praline stuffed beignets, crab meat stuffed beignets. That's Roderick Harrison, one of the owners of Loretta's Authentic Pralines, a food stand at Jazz Fest. We have a whole smorgasbord of options for your delight here today. Well, I don't eat food at Jazz Fest like a normal human being. Ian McNulty covers restaurants and food culture for the Times-Picayune and NOLA.com. And he has the tough job of sampling dishes from across the fairgrounds. I I go out here with a mission. Uh, Day one, I'm going to try to eat every new dish uh, out here. I counted 12 so far. And then it's Ian time after that, okay? And then Ian time means I'm going after my own personal favorites, Cochon Delay po' boy, soft-shell crab po' boy, the crawfish zucchini spinach bisque uh, from Jamila's restaurant, uh, the Creole gumbo from Little Dizzy's, Patton's combo platter of crawfish sack oyster patty and crawfish beignet. Uh, the catfish pecan manure with the melaton casserole. And this is just appetizers. <laughs> For a lot of food vendors, Jazz Fest is a lifeline. That's especially true as the pandemic and its economic fallout have dealt a big blow to the hospitality industry in New Orleans for over two years now, including shutting down Jazz Fest in 2020 and 2021. What's the thing you want? Outside of the Benichin restaurant's tent in the Congo Square area, a long line waits for their Cameroonian and Gambian dishes. My name is Alice, Alice Mbonge, and this is Miss Fanta, Fanta Tambajang. Uh, we are the owners of the booth, serving um, the jama jama, which is a sauteed spinach, the poulet fricassee, which is a grilled chicken breast on a skewer, and the fried sweet rye plantains. Mbonge has been working Jazz Fest for decades, serving up the same crowd favorites time and again. And she's glad to see some familiar faces from before the pandemic hiatus very important. Our customers know that we are still here and they come to the restaurant, you know, they are happy to see that we are still around. Yeah. What are you most looking forward to over the course of the festival? Getting more people and listening to the music and I hope it doesn't rain. 
thing about Jazz Fest food is that it, it's its own entity. Here's Ian McNulty again. It's much different from your typical festival, uh, which may have basically glorified stadium food. Instead, at Jazz Fest, the food is made by local restaurants and caterers, and most are small family-run businesses. These are businesses that had to keep themselves whole in some way through two years plus of pandemic. So what you see around Jazz Fest is the majority of successes. My name is Pierre Hilson. I serve a dish called Crawfish Monica at Jazz Fest for the last 38 years. Crawfish Monica is one of the most famed festival dishes. It's a sort of grown-up crawfish-filled mac and cheese. And Hilsum couldn't wait to serve it up for customers again this year. The anticipation was tremendous. It's like missing Christmas two years in a row. Along with food service, Hilsum and his wife Monica manage a selling agency for their product lines, which has helped them weather the pandemic. But he knows not everyone has been so fortunate. He wants to see more federal government aid for small businesses. If not, we're going to lose a whole bunch of mom and pops and be left with a lot of uh, chain accounts. For Roderick Harrison from the Praline Stand, the return to Jazz Fest this year is bittersweet. His mom, the namesake Miss Loretta, started her business at Jazz Fest over 40 years ago. But this is the first time the family is here without her. She passed away two months ago, so we're just picking up the tradition where she left off. We're holding it down for her from above. From the fairgrounds in New Orleans, I'm Carly Berlin. Yesterday, WRKF's Karen Henderson brought us a conversation about the Creole Revolt of 1841 when enslaved people on a brig headed to New Orleans staged a mutiny steered the ship to the Bahamas, and claimed their freedom. This was the largest successful slave revolt in U.S. history. As noted in the conversation, not all enslaved people who escaped went north. Some went south to British colonies in the Caribbean, where slavery had been abolished. And escaped slaves did not stray too far from home, instead forming small communities with Native Americans while hiding out in Louisiana's cypress swamps. These came to be known as maroon communities. Back in June, WRKF's Karen Henderson spoke to Kathy Hambrick, founder of the River Road African American Museum in Donaldsonville, to learn more about these maroon communities and the history of escaped slaves in Louisiana. Today, we give that conversation a second listen. Kathy, first off, tell me a bit about the River Road African American Museum. What are the stories that you're seeking to preserve and share, and, and how are you doing that? Well, the stories that we preserve through our permanent exhibits that you will experience and see at the museum is Monde Color de Libre, which is an exhibit about the free people of color of Ascension Parish. You will learn about the African influences on Louisiana cuisine. This is an exhibit that has been in our museum for the past 20 years. Um, the rural roots of jazz. Who were those men and those women 
who contributed to the evolution of music from the rural parishes and then ended up in New Orleans making jazz famous. The rural Black doctors. There were eight Black doctors who received their medical degrees in the late 1800s and practiced at Flint Goodrich Hospital. They graduated from New Orleans University. That was Dillard University's Black Medical School. You will see and learn about Louisiana's Black inventors. Madam C.J. Walker was from Louisiana. Leonard Julian, who invented the sugarcane planting machine, is from Ascension Parish. You will see the art of Louisiana Black uh, folk artists like Malika Favorite and Alvin Baptiste. Uh, Louisiana's Underground Railroad. We are the only museum that even talks about Louisiana's Underground Railroad. Let's talk about that. I think that is it's very interesting and significant that the cypress swamps of Louisiana became a magnet for escaped slaves. You tell that story at the museum. Why is it? How did they use Louisiana's environment to their advantage? There were a a hundred or more plantations between New Orleans and Natchez, both sides of the river. So if you knew that if you could make your way into the swamp, that it was less likely that the plantation owner, the overseer, and the bounty hunters would go into deep into that swamp to look for you. Those communities in the swamp were known as maroon communities, and the individuals who ran away and, and sought refuge successfully, sometimes not successfully, were called and listed in the newspaper as maroons. They would seek shelter with Native Americans, and mostly in this part of Louisiana was the Choctaw Nation, and they would take us in to their camps there in the swamp. The Native Americans do have records of when the African descended people would reach their um, communal areas. We'd end up intermarrying with the Native Americans. And that's why many of us today are able to say that we are part Indian. We know through our grandparents and through oral history and great-grandparents that we intermarried with the Native people, and many times that was a case of us running, someone in your family running away. It also has a, a freedom garden that not only shows uh, the variety of vegetation that was cultivated by the use of the enslaved labor, but also reminds people how there was a use of both edible and medicinal plants as a mean, means of surviving. Could you tell us more about what plants we're talking about and why they were so important? Yes, and I, you know, there was a little boy who came uh, with his parents um, to the museum on a tour, and we were talking about the Underground Railroad, and this was before the garden. And the little boy asked me, he said, well, what did they eat? He said, well, what did they eat when they were running away? And both myself and his parents kind of looked at each other and it's like, well, I really didn't think about that, you, you know, yeah. you know, and it sparked my research, the beginning of my research to see what did they eat or what would you eat while running away? And the first thing that I realized was through reading about Harriet Tubman, how her father taught her about plants. She knew 
holistic medicine. She knew herbal medicine. She knew what berries were poisonous. Then the other thing I started to look at were the slave narratives and quote unquote slave narratives. That's what they're called from the WPA period of the 1930s. That pepper grass grows well in Louisiana, and it looks a lot, a lot like lettuce. This is Sarah Thomas, age 80, and this is one of those WPA narratives. So I knew about pepper grass because there are still women here on the River Road who go into the cane fields and they pick pepper grass and they talk about the medicinal purposes of pepper grass. And here I found it in a slave narrative. We uh, here's another narrative, and this one is from Africans in Colonial Louisiana by my good friend, Dr. Gwendolyn Midlow Hall. Testimony of Gabriel, a 40 year old Mina from the Mina tribe of, uh, of West Africa. We ate corn and potatoes, which we brought with us, and alligators. We had no weapons. Now, that one's interesting. If you had no weapons, and this is recorded in the record as him saying that they ate alligators. How did you uh, kill the for, alligator? <laughs> how would you kill an alligator? Right. And I pose, I pose that question to children. I would ask them, if you did not have a weapon, how would you kill it? And would you eat it? And would you eat raw meat? So much research and, and good information coming from a simple question that makes all the sense, but not one I've ever heard asked or answered. The museum celebrates the lives of many enslaved people, but it also tells a story of many free people of color. What are some of those stories? The one story that stood out the most that, that's a part of our reconstruction is Pierre Landry. Pierre Calice Landry was America's first elected black mayor. He was mayor of Donisonville in 1868. And I actually have the voting record from the state secretary of state's office that proves that there was an election. He was not appointed to office. So if you think about it, in 1868, just a few years after emancipation and the end of the Civil War, this man is elected to mayor. He was born a free person living as a free child or a free person, even though he lived at the plantation. That meant he was uh, given instruction. He learned how to read and write. By the age of 13, when... Uh, Mr. Prevost died, who owned him, the mistress or the wife sold young Pierre for $1,665. So he didn't know what it meant to be enslaved until he was an enslaved person himself. His story is incredible because he then went on to become one of the founders of Dillard University, which at that time was known as New Orleans University. His son, Lord Beaconsfield Landry, for which L.B. Landry High School in New Orleans on the West Bank is named. His son, L.B. Landry, was born in Donisonville. So, so for all of those alumni 
and students at LB Landry, I think it's called Walker Landry or Landry Walker School now in Algiers. The beginning of your school came from a man who was born in Donisonville, whose father was the first elected black mayor in oh, the United States. My goodness, what an amazing story. I know it's just one of many that you'll find uh, visiting the museum there in Donisonville. Founder of the River Road African American Museum in Donisonville, Kathy Hambrick. Kathy's also an independent consultant, curator, and author. For more information, you can check out her curriculum guide, Freedom's Journey in South Louisiana, soon to be published on the National Park Service Network to Freedom website. Kathy, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Come and see the museum. We set the record straight. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. The NOLA Project, theater for the bold, continues its season with a big side of humor as it presents Craigslisted. The quirky dark comedy by playwright Sheree Bohannon is making its New Orleans debut. NOLA Project co-artistic director Brittany N. Williams joins us now as we travel back to a simpler time. Brittany, welcome to Louisiana Considered. Thank you for having me. This must be exciting for you as this play has had several readings since it was penned seven years ago. And now this production marks the script's professional debut in New Orleans. What attracted you to this work? Well, it's one that we did for our reading series, Rough Drafts, a few years ago, and just revisiting it when we were thinking about what we were going to produce for this season, it's just a really weird but really <laughs> fun play. It's given us the opportunity to find some like new, younger actors. Our lead, Aria Jackson, she was actually in a show from last season, School Girls or the African Mean Girls play, along with providing some really interesting roles for some of our ensemble members and a few other uh, actors who we haven't worked with. And it's just, I remember how both exciting and terrifying Craigslist was in like 2015, like in the early 2010s and stuff. So just to see how this play just dives into that titillation and <laughs> kind of sees it through to, for some people, it's logical, and it's such a fun piece. Now tell us about the playwright, Sheree Bohannon. So Sheree, on top of being a playwright, she's also a pop culture critic. I know she has a horror podcast that she runs, and she travels all over the country talking about different films and movies and all kinds of media, and she's just a really, really smart savvy critic and writer, and I'm so excited to present her perspective to New Orleans. I think audiences will really like it and like what she has to say. So take us back to 2015 when the Classifieds website, Craigslist, was all the rave. What is being explored in Craigslisted? It's a combination of the anonymity of the internet and how that makes people braver and it makes people more willing to expose the secret and sometimes dark parts of themselves and the complications that come when your mysterious internet self crosses over into your real life 
and the ways that we can ourselves be exploited and also can turn around and exploit others and how the internet really has helped to facilitate that in some ways that are terrible and also in some ways that can turn out in the end to be positive. So what's the storyline? Our main character, Maggie, she is a struggling college student. She's really trying to find ways to pay her bills. When we first meet her, her electricity is getting cut off, and she's kind of at the point where she just doesn't want to ask her friends for money anymore. So she starts answering unusual personal ads that she finds on Craigslist. So she's asked to do some some odd things, and it ends up helping her financially, but she also gets caught up in a bit more trouble and excitement than she had hoped for. So... <laughs> Give us some insight into the quirky characters created by the playwright. Some of Maggie's customers are, uh, there's a foot fetishist, um, there is a furry or someone who has a a kind of anthropomorphized animal persona or fursona, as they they like to be called. There's a, a rather lonely gentleman who really latches on to Maggie in a very intense, and uncomfortable way. There's Maggie herself, who is a really dedicated college student, but just has no money whatsoever. There's also her two friends, Robin and Haley, who just really have Maggie's best interests at heart, but that kind of makes them butt heads. So that's just a little snippet. There's some other, I don't want to give too much away Uh to the audience. Can you describe one of your favorite scenes from the play? Yes, it's actually the scene that I picked for us to read earlier this year at our Boil for the Bold slash season reveal party. And it's when the customer who comes in in his full fursona costume is trying to organize a party in Maggie's apartment and basically spends the scene dressing her down for not putting enough effort into her costume. She's just wearing like cat ears and maybe like a tail that you would get from a Halloween store instead of a full, authentic furry costume. And he's inviting people over to do all kinds of, like, drugs and things, and they're trying to negotiate whether or not he's going to be allowed to have this party. Who knows how it plans it to turn out, but there's going to be a lot of drugs and a lot of probably illegal activity, and he's trying to negotiate that with Maggie. It's a a very funny, very quick scene. The stakes are very high. It's one of my favorites. Now, what do you think will be the big takeaway for audiences? So aside from just an enjoyable night of theater, I think one big takeaway will be being careful about what you share and careful about who you share that with. It's like a big thing with the growth of social media and the internet being what it is right now. A lot of times you feel like you can be much more open with strangers than you would be in a face-to-face situation. And that's not always the smartest or the safest decision. So... I think this will really make people consider what the cost of that false sense of freedom may be. Yeah. NOLA Project co-artistic director, Brittany N. Williams. Thanks so much. Thank you, Diane. Craigslisted runs December 1st through 17th at Loyola University's Marquette Theater. For more information, visit nolaproject.com.
From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. Thanks to our guest, Kathy Hambrick, founder of the River Road African American Museum, and the NOLA Project co-artistic director, Brittany N. Williams. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, and our digital editor is Caitlin Umholtz. Our engineers are Garrett Pittman, Aubrey Procell, and Thomas Walsh. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7.30 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcast. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from the Historic New Orleans Collection.